Should we start with, hey, all you cool cats and kittens? <laughs> My name is Mackenzie. And this is Fatina. And you're listening to Stranger Danger, a true crime podcast. <laughs> Welcome back. <laughs> we are in a new recording studio and we had quite a time getting set up. We are more than six feet apart, so we are following social distancing rules. We do it for you guys. This is true. We figured that away. Locked and loaded to start recording some things for you guys. Well, to get us back in the swing of things, this one was a listener recommendation. So I got this message through our Instagram account at a stranger danger podcast. And it says, hi there. I'm Lily and my mom is a coworker of yours. That's a coworker of mine. Got it. My parents just got me into your podcast and I had a suggestion for a killer if you haven't already done him. Then she sends me a screenshot of the Fox Hollow Farm Killer. She said, I learned about this guy on an episode of Ghost Adventures, and he was a serial killer that targeted gay men, killed them most famously in his home swimming pool, and buried the bodies in his backyard. And she said she hasn't done too much research on him, but what I did find was interesting. Shout out to Lily. Thank you so much for sending this my way. Um, I told her when she sent over the screenshot to me, I recognized his picture right away, but didn't know very much about the background information. I recognized the picture. I knew he had targeted men that were gay, but I didn't know anything else. Sure. So thank you so much for sending this because it was an interesting dive. Definitely Ooh, a full cool. on creep creep. So Nice. And thanks to the parents for putting her onto this awesome show. <laughs> her mom talked to me and was like, so my daughter is listening to your podcast and she has a daughter that's in fourth grade. And I was like, dear God, not that one. And she was like, no, 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 no not that one. <laughs> so it is her oldest daughter who is over the, I think she's actually 18. So we are of legal Great. age. Yes. Cool. Perfect. So. The story is going to be about Herb Baumeister. Resources on this one are going to be Murderpedia, Wikipedia, and Learning History. To kind of give you a little bit of background information, Herbert, a.k.a. Herb, which is what I will be calling him, Baumeister was born on April 7th, 1947 in Indianapolis, Indiana. And he was the oldest of four kids and obviously named after his dad, Herb ba or Herbert Baumeister, and his mom was Elizabeth. Okay. His childhood is described as normal, um, but he begins exhibiting antisocial behavior at a fairly young age. It's just, when I say his childhood was normal, there's not really a cause or reason that anyone's really identified. There doesn't seem to be much abuse. There doesn't seem to be any particular instance, like no, no head moment. trauma, nothing like that, right. that you would typically see of somebody that goes down this path. Sure. So nothing like that, but becomes fairly antisocial and then starts just doing the weirdest stuff. So people said that he used to play with dead animals, like roadkill. Well, there's, there's your son. That's a little weird. And he once urinated on a teacher's desk. What? This kid has a weird fascination with peeing on things. So yeah, he peed on a teacher's desk. Oh, man. And then a childhood friend said he once wondered out loud what it would be like to taste human urine. <laughs> yeah okay sorry <laughs> it doesn't it doesn't stop there so the infatuation with that doesn't stop there he also once picked up a dead crow on the way to school like he, saw it as roadkill picked it up and then left it on a teacher's desk this is school. when he's a kid this so. is when he's a kid yeah wow 
And then as a teenager, he doesn't really fit in. He doesn't really play sports. He tries, but doesn't like really do well with socializing and everything like that. So ends up becoming relatively withdrawn. They say that he doesn't ever show any type of interest in dating, like zero, none. And this doesn't... is sounding a lot like Dahmer. Yeah. A lot a like lot him. A lot like Dahmer. Which is interesting because Jeffrey Dahmer also targeted men. Gay men. Yeah. Yeah. So as a teenager, he's actually diagnosed with schizophrenia, but he never receives any type of psychiatric treatment for this. Hmm. So the diagnosis comes and it's potentially like a multiple personality and schizophrenia type of situation, mm-hmm. but... He doesn't ever type get any type of treatment. It's just documented as a diagnosis. Weird. Yeah. You'd think that it'd either be either psychological help or Yeah, a what's drug the point help? of the diagnosis if right. you're not gonna do anything with it? So he gets older and he attends Indiana University in nineteen sixty five for one semester and drops out. Then he goes back to school two years later and does another semester, then goes back or then decides to drop out again um, and kind of is back and forth between that school for about four years. And he goes to Butler University in 1972 for a semester. So he's just kind of back and forth in college, never really Commits. completes anything. Yeah. And he ends up dropping out. He doesn't ever graduate. And he shows that same pattern in work. So he kind of drifts from job to job with very little consistency. But he's described to have a very strong work ethic. On the downside, employers also noted really bizarre behavior that steadily increases. So he once sent out a Christmas card of him and a guy dressed in drag to all of his coworkers, which back in that time period in the 70s would have been very strange to do. Kind of taboo. Yeah. Yeah. It's not really something that was celebrated or publicized about, right? yeah and the fact that he sent it to his co-workers and he's living in indiana bible belt so that's you know it's just not what you do out of the yeah right of left field at one point when working at a job at the dmv he began urinating on his boss's desk okay so, like so he's said, a full-blown adult now yeah no he's a he's a supposedly functioning adult yeah and he just pees on things they said that they knew that he was the one doing it, but somehow he managed to like not get fired in the whole situation, not really sure how, until he decided to pee on a letter that was addressed to the governor. Oh, shit. Yeah. And that's when they were like, all right, enough is enough. You got to stop peeing on things. And <laughs> he lost that job. In the meantime, he had married a woman named Julie Sater, and that was in November of 1971, and they had three kids. They were both considered, or both, I guess, identified as conservative Methodists. Now, I don't say this for any reason. Well, I do say this for a reason, because I don't really like to bring in the whole political and religious thing, because very often it's not relevant to the story. In this case, it is relevant because, like I said, he's living in Bible Belt. Right. He's pretty involved in the church, and he is, at the time, conservative, which means he's a little bit more right-leaning as far as, like, the gay lifestyle and everything like sure. that. Probably but he's was keeping appearances. Right. By... So it's very much this facade of straight, married, Methodist, conservative man. And at this point, couple. Yes. But, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Had the children. Have, have the, the three kids. It is... It's a look. Right. Right. So this persona is the one that he's built, but there are some issues. So at some point within the 70s, it's not exactly sure when, but it was after he was married that his dad had him committed to a psychiatric hospital. 
And his wife supported that stay, saying that he was hurting and needed help, but there's not a whole lot more information about why he was institutionalized during this time. Okay. But, but something was going on. Voluntary and... Not necessarily voluntary. His dad had him institutionalized. Oh, okay, okay. And he's an adult married man, and his oh. dad is the one that's having him committed. Interesting. So something's going on there. But after that, he is released from the hospital and seems to be thriving. In 1988, he founded a thrift store chain called Save-A-Lot in Indianapolis. Um, It does very well. They had two stores, and the neighbors and community really liked him. He's very much a part of things, so not really exhibiting some of those antisocial behaviors that had previously plagued him. He has a really nice house, um, what some would describe as a mansion, which we'll get into later, but it's okay. a Tudor-style house. It's on 18 and a half acres of property. Whoa. He has a really nice car. It's in what is considered one of the wealthier communities of the area. So he's doing really, really well. He's doing great. But his marriage isn't doing all that well. So despite the fact that they have three kids, his wife reported that In their 25 years of marriage, they had sex a total of six times. Oh, shit. Yeah. Now, I don't know how you get pregnant that quickly. No shit. (laughs) Where they're like, they got a 50% chance of getting knocked up. They split a few times because of Herb's increasingly controlling behavior. He apparently, in, in addition to not ever engaging in any type of sexual intercourse with his wife, right. he also would get dressed in the bathroom and sometimes, like, would put on pajamas, like, between the sheets. Like, he wouldn't actually, like, get out of bed to take them off or put them on or anything. It was like he'd put the blankets or sheets over him and then, you know, kind of like if you got caught or something, that type of situation. <laughs> That's he would the get dressed underneath the blankets? Yeah, and in the bathroom. So she said in all of their years of marriage, she never saw him naked. You're joking. Swear to God. So I'm picturing like, graphic, but in their six times of having sex, I'm picturing shirt on, lights off, pants down, sheets over. Can't Ola. have been very exciting, but... <laughs> This is reportedly because he is really ashamed of how thin he is. I mean, he he is a slight man. Okay. So this is the life that he's living in his pretty home and his sexless marriage. Fast forward. So the 90s roll around. So like I said, he founded Save-A-Lot in 1988. So a couple years later, we are in the 90s. Seems like yesterday for me. If you, I'm <laughs> the fact that the '90s were save a lot still around. Am yeah, I just making that? I'm up? pretty sure it is. Okay, but I think it's only in Indiana. But yeah, it sounds very familiar to it me does. too. It does. Maybe there's another save a lot that maybe just maybe it's expanded from. since then. They sold it and it's maybe. expanded. Right. I don't know. If you're from Indiana, let me know. Hit me up. <laughs> this is just like yesterday for us. When you say the '90s, I'm like, this is this is my. T- the, during my lifespan. I was alive when this stuff was happening. So it's weird because I feel more disconnected from stuff like Ted Bundy or, you know, Ed Kemper where it happened in the 70s, 80s. But you roll around into the 90s and you're talking my time period. Absolutely. So during this time, several men had disappeared. And these were men that were, for the most part, they seemed to be disappearing after going to a gay bar, like a known gay bar in the area. Sure. These disappearances aren't really being widely addressed or reported on. For the most part, all of these men 
looked very similar. They're very similar height, very similar weight. They have a very similar look about them. And the story is relatively similar. They went to a gay bar. They are of the gay lifestyle. Then they disappeared. Like nobody's seen them since. So if it's being reported on, it's the same recycled story. It's just that they're changing the name right. of who's disappearing. And because we are living in the 90s, things are different back then. Which seems so weird to be of it's our generation and be like, things were different ago. back then. I know. Yeah, it doesn't feel like long ago, but then again, when you think about it, it's like, wow, it's been almost years 30 ago. years. Yeah. There was a specific part of the community that if they went missing, not that much attention was paid to it. Right. They weren't being widely addressed or reported on, and when they were, it was the same story being recycled, so it wasn't really drawing any new attention. And some theorize that this was because they are in the Bible Belt community of the United States. They either lacked interest or, you know, it wasn't... um, A priority for them. Yeah, definitely not a priority and almost probably something that they didn't really want to see or hear or address. There was also theories that part of the reason that they were ignored is because they thought some of these men were moving out of the area. Ah. So rather than living in a community where they didn't feel very much a part of things or felt outcasted, they were going to places like San Francisco or New York where they could be more themselves and have a larger community. So, so they put it off to that. Yeah, they chalked it up to they moved. They're just going and exploring something with a more progressive culture or something like that. And they just kind of ignored it. But there was a private investigator at the time. His name was Virgil Vandegrift. And he did not think that these disappearances were unrelated. He very much thought, thought there was a connection here, that these men were being targeted, that this was very systematic. And so he linked up with Mary Wilson, who was an investigator for the Indianapolis Police Department. Okay. So the two of them link up and kind of swap notes, and they're working together on this case because they do think that there is more behind it. And they begin contacting these men at the bar, kind of handing out their cards, you know, and kind of frequenting some of these areas and talking to some of these people. And really the only information that they're getting is... Um, one guy who went missing by the name of Roger got into a car that was blue and it had a license plate on it that was an Ohio license plate and then Hmm. he was never seen again. Interesting. So they kind of have an idea of the car that they're looking for. Nothing really breaks open until 1993 and that's when they are contacted by a man who is named Tony Harris or he contacts them and says that another man at a gay bar who went by the name Brian Smart had killed his friend and then attempted to kill him. What? Yeah. What? Just, okay. That's something. Right. So he said that he was at a gay bar in Indianapolis, and at this bar, there is a missing persons poster on the wall of the man Roger, who got into the car, right? Oh, the first one. Right. So there's a missing poster of him up on the wall, and this man named Brian was staring at the poster. I mean, really analyzing it. And Tony said that he wasn't staring at it in a way that made him feel like he was interested in the poster of the missing man. Have I seen this person? Right. He said that it was, that there was a familiarity there. And so he, in his story, he describes it as like, he knew that that was the guy that killed his friend, (laughs) blah, blah, blah. But then all of the events that I'm about to tell you, if you knew that you were with somebody that was a murderer, you wouldn't do all of these things. Okay. So 
He says that he goes over and introduces himself after suspecting that this guy is too interested in the poster. And that's when this man introduces himself as Brian Smart. He tries to ask him about the poster or whatever, but this guy named Brian dodges Mm -hmm. the questions, but then quickly invites him over to his house for the night. So Tony says that he's told that this is an empty house that he's taking care of. He's doing some work for them until the family moves in. He invites them over for a drink. But there are also some things about what's coming in the house that the story doesn't really match because he says it's not, it's an empty house, but then there's stuff in the house. So something doesn't quite line up right here. Okay. But the idea is that he is inviting him over to a house that he does have stuff in, but the family that lives there is not there. Okay. He's probably trying to hide the fact that he has a whole family. Right. Okay. So that's kind of what I'm thinking is that he is hiding the fact that he is a whole, he has a whole family during this time. It's and spoiler alert. Brian smart is Herb. Right. Baumeister in case you were wondering. So during this time, they said that the house had kind of fallen in disarray, that the yard wasn't being taken care of anymore, that things had kind of overgrown, that they weren't really keeping the house very tidy, that it was very much a reflection of who they were as a family, that they'd kind of descended into chaos. Okay. So I think he was trying to kind of explain the appearances of his house right. because during this time, his wife and their kids are spending a lot of time with her mother. There's some issues with the family, so they go up to her mother's house very often for the weekend, or they take vacations or whatever, so they're out of the house quite a bit. Okay. Tony describes it. They go quite a bit of ways out of town. It's fairly, it's about like 20 miles out of town. Damn. And they, he says. It's a long ride with the first night. Right. And he says, like, he doesn't realize how far they're going until it's like, wow, we've been in the car for 20 minutes. We're still driving. They get to this, what he calls a rich community. And it says they pull up to a quote-unquote mansion. So I think he's trying to explain why he lives in a rich community with a really big house and it's in disarray. Right. Okay. And so during this time, like I had mentioned, wife and kids are gone. He invites Tony into the house. And Tony says that there's cars in the driveway. There's very much a sign that people are living there, but there's no one else there at the house. Brian offers Tony a drink, but Tony refuses it. And at that time, Brian kind of gets disheveled and like bothered by it. But he leaves to go to use the bathroom, comes back, and he's very chatty, very gabby. So Tony suspects that he's done cocaine in the bathroom or something like uh, that to kind of like calm his nerves. Okay, okay. He then invites him down to the lap pool. So he has an indoor pool. Oh, fuck. Money, honey. Yeah. So he has an indoor lap pool. And when he opens the door to this pool, it's lined with mannequins that are in various stages of dress, various poses. And when Tony's like very visibly reacts to the fact that there are mannequins in the pool room, (laughs) he says that they're there because he gets lonely wow yeah uh no i'd be like goodbye bye i'll walk (laughs) i'm leaving i just remembered i'm very busy that is odd super odd and to be like oh i get lonely so i keep all of these mannequins in here to stare at me while i swim 
It's very weird. Hmm. I guess Tony just brushes it off. Again, I don't think that you would just brush these off if you thought that this was the man that killed your friend, which there are some conflicting reports, whether they're friends or partners. I guess, so Tony brushes it off and decides to go ahead and jump in the pool and take some laps. And at this point, Brian's talking to him, um, just kind of like chatting and everything like that. And then he picks up a hose that's by the pool and he begins describing what a rush you get if you choke somebody when you're having sex. The fuck? I mean, but... Right. With a hose? With a hose. <laughs> I mean, you do you, boo. But if you suspect somebody has murdered somebody and you're in a pool with a bunch of mannequins and somebody picks up a hose, like, there are a lot of red flags here. This might be the Jeez. time to, like, see you later. Yep. Exit to I'm your sit left. On this side of the pool while you sit over there. Yeah. But Tony decides that he is gonna see how things go. God damn it, Tony. <laughs> That's why I don't think that he knew what was going on. Because you're not like right. sitting in a room with a murderer and you go, you know what? Let's just see if he'll actually kill me. Go ahead. Go ahead. Right, Come choke me. Try it. Well, if anything, I think that maybe he started talking to him out of just yeah, curiosity that he was looking at the poster, but Maybe think, that was a starting, like, a talking point. Like, well, let's talk about him. I know, I knew him too, da 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 Yeah. I think after what happens takes place that I'm about to tell you about, I think it's at that point he realizes who he's with. Right. Not but before. But he tells the story like he got it figured out the whole time. And I'm like, if you were, if you had it figured out the whole time, you would not let this man put a hose around your neck. Tony's like, yeah, sure. Let's totally do this erotic asphyxiation thing and see how it goes. So they, I think he trusted the situation more because Brian was like, here, choke me first type thing. So he choked Brian while Brian was getting himself off situation. Yep. And then roles reversed. Got it. So Brian begins choking him out. But instead of just, like, choking him to the point of pleasure, he chokes him to the point of passing out. So he yanks that thing. Tighter, tighter, tighter. Gone. So he passes out. And when he wakes up, he says Brian is standing over him and acts surprised that he's awake. Sorry. And then goes into this whole thing like, oh my God, you scared me. Like, you can't do that. Accidents happen with this kind of thing. You can't die, blah, blah, blah. And Tony says that this is the point that he asks him, is that what happened to Roger? Whoa. And then Brian tries to act like he doesn't really know what he's talking about or whatever. Mm -hmm. And so Tony convinces him to take him back into town. Huh. Okay. Right. That's a long-ass ride back. Yep. So they pick up all their stuff, put on some clothes, and they take the journey home. So this is the story that Tony has told detectives of how he almost died. Okay. His encounter with Herb. Right. The detectives look into this Brian Smart character. They don't know who it is. Tony can't really pin down what neighborhood he was oh, in or anything like that. That's right. They don't have his actual name. Right. So that basically detectives give him a card and say, call us if you ever see the guy again. Okay. Well, in 1994, 
I'm going chronologically here no, yeah. because when we bounce between timelines, it gets confusing. <laughs> She's really doing that for me, guys. Because <laughs> sometimes we she all over the place. To keep my attention. <laughs> well, in 1994, her Baumeister's family gets the first indication that something's up. Hmm. So. Herb and Julie's oldest son is out playing in the backyard wooded area when he finds a full ass human skull. Shit, no. Yeah. So he takes this. Oh my God. Yeah. Can you imagine? No. And he's a boy. So obviously he picked that skull up. Poke, poke. Yeah. Yeah. He picked it up. He literally picked it up. He takes it back into the house and goes, mom, what's this? (laughs) So he takes it into the house. His mom is like obviously shaken. So Julie waits for Herb to get home and is like, uh, excuse me, sir. <laughs> What's this? And she said that he responds in a very monotone, no inflection or surprise or anything like that. Says that it's one of his father's dissection skulls from his dad. His dad's a doctor. He's an anesthesiologist. Oh. So he says it's one of his dissection skulls and that he found it out in the garage when he was out there cleaning. So he decided to just bury it in the yard casual oh i didn't tell you about the school i found and yeah. buried in the backyard wouldn't you bury all of your stuff in the backyard Jesus. i mean it sounds kind of plausible though but no it doesn't yeah it does i would be like first of all why do you have one of your dad's skulls second why wouldn't you just throw it in the trash why would you bury it in the backyard you creep that's like you're wanting to raise questions if you don't want to raise questions, you put the skull in the trash. You don't bury it. Murder 101. You're welcome. <laughs> or throw it in acid. Just kidding. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> That's a different serial killer. <laughs> Moving on. Chronologically. It's November of 1995, and the detectives investigating the case get a phone call, and it is our friend Tony. Oh. About two years. Yep. And Tony tells them that he has seen Brian Smart again. And this time he's able to provide detectives with a license plate number. Oh. Yep. Okay, Tony. Okay, Tony, we see you. (laughs) And so the detectives run the license plate and they find that the car is registered to Herb Thalmeister. Interesting. Who lives in a very big house with a lot of property and a lap pool. So it matches up with Tony's story. Matches up. So Detective Mary Wilson goes to see Herb and tells him that he's a suspect in these disappearances and asks to search the house. And Herb is like, hell nah. You gotta get, get out of here. Right. Yeah. Herb doesn't take too kindly to this, obviously. And he's like, nope, yeah, you gotta go. And he tells his wife that he's being investigated for theft hmm. and tells them if you are approached by these detectives or anything like that they are not to have access to anything you are not to allow them on the property you are you know have all these rules that you are not allowed to do sure and so detective wilson then later on comes back around to tie try and talk to julie the wife when herb's not around Uh, now julie with her instructions or whatever refuses to let them search the property but then okay. the detective levels with her about why he was really being investigated. Oh, damn. Yeah, and rocks her world. She's like, here you go. Not yet. Damn it. Really? <laughs> she says that she's visibly shaken. Of course. That 
basically, yeah, she rocked her world that day. But Julie still refuses to let them search the property. Hmm. Eight months go by. And we're now in June of 1996, and Julie is beginning to grow concerned. Herb has been having really erratic mood swings. He's acting really bizarre. And at this point, things just get bad enough that she decides to file for divorce. At the same time, she's over his shit. So she calls detectives and she says, have at it, boys. Fuck yeah. Yeah. So she grants permission on June 24th for them to investigate the property. And at the time, Herb is on... Vacation, air quotes, vacation. And so police get to the property and they begin searching everything and they go back out into that backyard area where their son was playing and it's about 50 or 60 feet from the house and they begin to uncover the remains of 11 men. Whoa! They find bones and body parts. They're covered in leaves on top of the ground in this wooded area, so they're not even they're really not fully buried. No, they're not even fully buried. But reasoning behind this is because I think there's a couple different reasons. So <laughs> dumb. Yeah, <laughs> that. But the detective said that the most of the flesh had been eaten away or had you know decayed decayed sure. over time, so decomp had set in, or it had been eaten by animals. There's also several signs that the bodies had been burned. So I think he was leaving them exposed, A, so he could burn them, and B, so, like, nature would take its course and the animals would take care of it. Instead of digging it up and dragging it away or dragging it onto the property, it would be openly available to them. That's that's my theory, at least. Science. Yep. So... They, like I said, so they find the remains of 11 men. Um, because decomp is so bad and there's not really a lot of identifying evidence on them as far as like watches or clothing or anything like that, they have a really hard time IDing the body. And when all is said and done, they were only able to identify eight of the men. So those include Johnny Bear, who's 20, Alan Wayne Broussard, who's 28, Roger Goodlett, who's 33, which I think wow. is the Roger that was was on the poster, right. Richard Hamilton, who's 20, Stephen Hale, who's 26, Jeff Allen Jones, 31, Michael Kern, 46, and these men are all of Indianapolis, and then Manuel Resendez, who is of Lafayette, so that's eight. All wow. Of- All of these men were reported missing between 1993 and 1996. Three years. really quick. Yep. They were able to identify these men because of dental records, but the rest they were never really able to identify. And most, they said most of them, if not all, and I think most of them, if not all, means to the extent in which their families were willing to acknowledge this. Most of them were gay men who frequented gay bars or participated in different types of events with the LGBTQ community. Sure. So, like I said, Herb's on vacation during this whole thing. So he's, he's out getting a little sun and he calls his brother and his brother's like, yo, there's something going on at your house. Shit. BT dub. I think Julie let him on the property and Herb panics. 
So obviously he freaks out um, and he takes off to Canada. Oh, shit. Yes, yeah, so he crosses the border and he finds himself in Ontario. And he, at one point, he's found sleeping on a bench and he tells the officer that stops him that he's just a tourist, that he's there to just like enjoy, blah, blah, blah. A couple days later, he is in the Pinery Provincial Park in Ontario and he shoots himself in the head. <gasps> he leaves a note behind, a three-page suicide note stating that yeah. he is killing himself because of his failed marriage and because of his business that is struggling and says that these are the reasons for the suicide, but never mentions the murders. He doesn't? No, doesn't mention anything about it. After his death, he is linked to the murders of nine more men. Um, and these men were found partially nude, dumped along the I-70 between Indiana and Ohio. He's linked to these men because Julie said that her husband made as many as a hundred trips to Ohio for reported store business for a save a lot. Oh. So she said that he was back and forth quite a bit. And when he was back and forth, it lined up with when these men went missing. Oh, really? And that is how he earned the nickname, the I-70 killer. Oh man. Now, obviously he was never brought up on charges of any of these things, but evidence is strong and timelines match supporting that these men, along with their cause of death and everything like that, that they were, it looks like, to be victims of Herbert Baumeister. Herb. All in all, he is suspected of killing anywhere from 8 to 16 men. Obviously, like, they found 11 on his property, oh, but they were only there. able to identify those 8. So, oh. so because they only have the identities of 8, we start at 8 being like the for sure number all the way up to 16. Got it. Now owners afterwards have claimed that the house and the property are haunted. So the house was also covered in ghost hunters. And as Lily said, it was on ghost ah, adventures. Okay. So the property is considered to be widely haunted, that there's a lot of like activities and apparitions and stuff like that, potentially from the men that died there so much so that there has been back and forth on whether or not the property is should be lived on, whether or not they should oh, take the house down, blah, blah, blah. So there are current owners of the house, and they do live in that house, but they've sold off the part of the property where the bodies were uncovered. And a oh. man is actually, as of 2016, planning on building a house on that property. So he's probably done it by this point. He's like a wine connoisseur type thing. So he is planning on building a house and says that he does not care if people say it's haunted. He doesn't think it is. And he is going to move forward with that. Some that project. people just don't. No fear. No fear. We, we don't know fear. Who's that? So the house remains. The property is being developed on. But that is the story of Herbert Baumeister, the I-70 killer. Wow. That's interesting. I wish he would have said something about why. Me well, too. Well, I guess not the why, but at least acknowledge it on his suicide letter. Yeah, I wish that he had too, so there would be some type of closure, closure. or, you know, at least some acknowledgement. But, like, because of that, it's always, like, the suspected killer or right. allegedly or, you know, this and that. When it's, like, the bodies were found on his property. like There's no going away from that There's... yeah and i think you know there is i've heard conflicting things about these situations where these somebody that has murdered people their family members you know talk about well 
I think the public is more inclined to be like, oh, good, save us the taxpayer dollars or whatever. But the family feels a little bit robbed of the justice because there is no public type of acknowledgement or accountability to it. It just kind of, you know, they kill themselves and then it's done. And there's nothing that can really be done. There's no closure. Right. There is no closure in that. And there's no... Especially for the families of the people, of the victims along the highway. Yeah. Because he's only suspected of it. And I'm sure there is evidence that would be very good to, you know, put him on it. But again, there's no closure. There's no official stamp on it. And on the flip side, if that isn't who killed those men on the I-70... And, you know, that's just where they chalked it up to and that's, you know, closed case or whatever, then justice really doesn't take its course because it's an easy close. And that's happened before totally. where it matches another person's MO and they they get away with it. Look at the Atlanta child killer. Yeah, there's absolutely. There's a lot of disputing evidence about that. Yeah. So well, there's some murders that were put off to the Zodiac that weren't even the Zodiac. Right. So. That's scary. I wish they had the families would have had some closure, but that's a lot of people. Yeah. Well, and it's interesting that I think based on Tony's account, because I mean, it's, they've identified that Tony's interaction with this Brian Smart, like that, that was Herbert Baumeister, obviously. Right. Emma was kind of like, okay, let's pick these guys up at the bar, bring them home when my wife and kids are on vacation or they're at their grandma's house or whatever like that. And then give them a drink, potentially spiked with something. That would be my guess, spiked with something. And that's part of why Tony didn't die that night is because he refused the drink. Right. Either get them like kind of out of their wits or whatever. Yeah. Or, you know, it, when you have somebody that's drugged, I think it slows down the breathing and stuff like that when they're unconscious. So it makes it easier. Or something, but, you know, then at that point he, like, they're more likely to go along with his whole, like, asphyxiation thing, and then he just chokes them to death. Right. If the bodies are just uh, decomped out in the in the field, it's probably not easy to know what their actual cause of death was either. Right. Again, just another thing that I wish the authorities would have had an opportunity to interview him. Right, me too. There's some gaps there, but it is... It is helpful to have a survivor that can tell you, you know, this was my experience. Right. Wow. That was interesting. Thank you, Lily. Lily. Thank you. Shout out, girl. Yeah, that's a really interesting case. Now I'm going to go and look at the uh, ghost hunters. I know. For sure. I know. You too. Because I want to know, especially the The pool pool area. Yeah. The pool area. That has to be. A place of activity. I know. That's why I, I thought about diving into that, but then I was like, that could be a whole nother whole thing. Whole nother so. rabbit hole. <laughs> yeah, with the mannequins in there. Mm-hmm. You know, it's really interesting. My demented mind is thinking, if the mannequins were clothed and the remains weren't, was that the victim's <gasps> clothes on the mannequins? Oh my God. I didn't even think of that. Ah. And why was the wife okay with mannequins in the pool? Okay, bye. <laughs> That is a very fair question. But, I'd be like, sir, yeah, you're no. going to have to find somewhere else for you and your mannequins to live. Yeah, like a fire. <laughs> Goodbye. Go jump in a fire. Oh, that's interesting. All right. Well, if you or you have a story that interests you and you want us to do the research for you and then tell you a nice nighttime story, 
write it in like Lily did, and we'll be happy to look into it for you. That was not what I was expecting, actually. <laughs> no, me It neither. was great, <laughs> but that's not what I was expecting. No, no, me neither. When I started looking into it, I was like, oh, I know this guy. Isn't he the guy that does this? And I, like, Wait started a minute. <laughs> looking into it, and I was like, holy smokes. All right, Ken, tell them where they can write into again. Um, yeah, so if you want to give us some topics, you can follow us on Instagram and leave us comments, messages, suggestions at a stranger danger podcast. You can email us at a stranger danger podcast at gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook at stranger danger colon a true crime podcast and for extras that are not going to be posted on instagram or other platforms you can find the facebook page stranger danger colon murder lovers and for twitter you can find us at sd true crime pod that is all (laughs) thank you so much Elbow bumps for everybody since we are not hugging or shaking hands or doing anything like that. Stay well, stay isolated. That's it. That's it. Okay. Okay, see you in the next one. Bye.